Father, as we move into the time of preaching the word, help us thank you for sending Christ. Thank you that you are a God we can stand in awe of, and you receive our awe. Thank you that you allow us, through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand in your presence and not be consumed. And so help us this morning as we open your word in Jesus' name, amen. good? Am I on? All right. Still finding my way around. Ephesians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, let me invite you to turn there once again. It's just a great privilege again to be here with you this morning. My wife and kids are involved in an Easter play in Kwamba, so they're not able to be here. Let's see if I can get this in the right spot. Um, But they wish they could be. I stole Jim, my dear friend, for these last five or six years, and a uh, fellow troublemaker in the church, and uh, so I brought him up here so that you could have the privilege of meeting him as well. We're in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 17, in keeping with the theme that we've been developing over the last couple of times we've been together, our address this morning is called to walk in newness. I thought about calling it uh, called to walk no longer, as that would actually be more fitting to the text in verse 17. But I imported the phrase, walk in newness, from Romans 6, verse 4, uh, because it is a very fitting phrase for this text. We've been looking at together what it means that Christ has called us, not just to be Christians, but to be a church and individually to be a part of a church. And the relational element of the Christian life is something I think the American church needs to think very hard about, because... American culture is rooted in a rugged individualism, which says, I really don't need you, and if I really want to, I can get along without you just fine. And uh, the postmodern era has ushered in a radical individualism, which says, not only do I not need you, but you and I don't even need to share the same reality. I can live in my little world, and you can live in yours. What's important in the postmodern mind is our story, but you just make up your story, and I'll make up mine, and at the end of the day, whether or not they actually have anything in common is irrelevant. We stand on this side of the Atlantic Ocean, and for the past century or so, though less than the last decade, we've, we've more or less looked at the other side of the big pond and scoffed at the failure of communism and socialism, this, this idea that individuals don't matter, what matters is the collective. And we've seen that when those ideas take root in a society, invariably masses of people are slaughtered. I heard in the past few weeks a total of something like 170 million untimely deaths can be directly linked to the political theories of communism and socialism, when, when nationalism abandons individualism, blood begins to flow. It's always been that way. But on the other hand, individuals who have no concept of any responsibility to each other are ultimately going to cease being a nation at all. If we become so individualistic, we cannot and we will not be bound together by anything We will cease to actually be anything, at least until something comes along and and binds us together. And so 
nations historically have been bound together by allegiance to a common king, a common language, culture, a shared morality, even even religion or something along those lines. But I think today we are probably seeing the fruit of an individualism that refuses to be bound together by anything except the demand that we not be bound by anything. And, and I think that will yield some sort of chaotic result in the near future. Unity, then, that doesn't value diversity leads to suspicion and destruction of anything that is diverse. That's, that's communism. We are going to destroy anything diverse for the sake of unity. But, but diversity that doesn't value any sort of unity will end up in anarchy and chaos. And if that's true in the broader world of global politics, I think it's just as true in the smaller world of the local church. We have to be unified under the gospel, but we have to be also diverse in that God has intentionally and deliberately created each of us with different strengths that we offer the church and different weaknesses that are, that are there so they can be propped up by others within the church. And that's really how it's supposed to work. And so we touched briefly last week on those twin concepts of unity and diversity. We are one body, but we are individual parts. We have one Savior, but individually we are weak, and, and, and we learn that the church best reflects the person of Christ, or the church expresses the fullness of Christ, to use the language of chapter 4, verse 13, when the body of Christ works together in unity and harmony to reflect the multifaceted nature of Christ. And to that end, Paul begins chapter 4 by telling, again, this is just review, begins by telling the Ephesians in verse 1 to 6, they have been called to walk in unity. He moves on to teach them they've been called to walk in strength in verse 7 to 16. And now as we take off a huge, huge bite of text and close out chapter 4 this morning, Paul is instructing the Ephesians to walk in newness, that is to walk no longer in the way they walked before the gospel invaded their lives. Again, Paul is going to hit the themes of unity and diversity, and that's, that's really how we're going to break this up this morning. Um, the theme of the individual within a body. Verses 17 to 24, you're going to see, are very individual-oriented. They, they largely cause us to focus inward on our own personal behavior, Verses 25 to 32, on the other hand, are directed outward. They focus our minds on the body. They're, they're all about our relationships with other people. And so the newness that we are called to walk in is going to have an internal dimension, an individual dimension, and also an external or outward dimension to it. And so to that end, if you're taking notes or you just want to try to follow along with the flow of thought, that's the way we're going to break apart the text this morning. We are called to walk in individual newness, verse 17 to 24, and we are called to walk in corporate in verse 25 to 32. So I'll read the text. Uh, we'll pray briefly and then dive right in. So this I say, Ephesians 4.17, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, 
if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And now, Father, as we open our text, I thank you that it is your Spirit who does the work through the proclamation of the Word. I am but such a weak servant. Father, there are those here who are anxious to have your peace brought into their heart. There are those who perhaps need to become anxious about sin. And so, Father, minister to all of us in, in however your spirit knows we need to be ministered by this text. In Jesus' name, amen. We are called, number one, in this text, to walk in individual newness. This I say, verse 17, affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. If, if we're going to talk about walking in newness, we're necessarily going to have to address the oldness, if you will. And that's what happens in verse 17 through 19. The concept of newness means there's something old we're setting aside and a newness we're embracing. And the metaphorical language that Paul is using here, and he uses it also in Colossians 3, is the language of taking off an old coat and putting on a new one. It's changing clothes, putting off and putting on. The exhortation is to get rid of the old and put on the new. The old coat is symbolic of an, an unbeliever, which every believer was at some point. If you know Jesus this morning, there was a time when you didn't. And so all of us have in common that we either are or were an unbeliever and therefore wearing the old coat. Um, the operative word then is the word no longer. It means you used to walk this way, but you've been called to walk in a different way. Put the old way off in the way you'd no longer wear an old coat. Put the new way on. So right from the get-go, let me just say this, and this isn't rocket science, it's rocket science, but it really needs to be said uh, because there are some who are going to dispute it. When a person is born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, a change of coat or a change of behavior begins to occur. And, and I use the word begins intentionally, begins to occur. Because we talked last week a lot about process within the life of the church, things that are moving 
uh, towards a goal. Christ, last week we talked about Christ giving apostles. Uh, apostles found the church. Evangelists spread the church. Pastors equip the saints in the church. The saints do the work. The body is built up. It's a process. And it's, it's accomplished in steps or stages. In other words, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes years and sometimes even uh, a generation. And the same is true in the individual life of a believer. We're always, we are in the state of process. We're in the state of progress. We're moving. There's an old saying that you may have heard. It says, we ain't what we ought to be. We ain't what we're going to be, but thank God we ain't what we used to be. Okay. And so let's look at what we used to be for a minute and then take Paul's exhortation to throw it aside. The old walk is in verse 17 to 19. And you'll notice a progression even in these verses as well as we speak of process. So the old walk in verse 17 begins by being described as futility of the mind. And in verse 19, it ends with a greedy pursuit of wickedness. And what Paul is doing here is he is connecting the mind or our thinking with our doing. These three little verses, by the way, verse 17 to 19, form a very concise version of what he expands on more fully in Romans chapter 1. You see some of the same verbiage like darkened understanding and being given up to pursue after evil without restraint. They really connect those two texts. But the old walk, or the walk that is currently being walked by the unsaved, consists of two flaws, fundamental flaws. The first is flawed thinking, and the second is flawed behavior. And they're very much connected. So the Gentiles and us prior to Christ walk in the futility of our minds. Verse 17, the word futility there means what is devoid of truth or appropriateness. You may have heard, for instance, that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, Any efforts to do so are futile. It's futile to install a screen door on a submarine. It's futile to create a solar-powered flashlight. It's futile to cheer for any Minnesota sports team. You're just wasting your effort for the labor. And in that way, in the same way, the thinking of an unbeliever fails to yield any sort of meaningful result when it comes to making himself pleasing or acceptable to God. I think that's what's in view here. The mind of an unbeliever is incapable of thinking in such a way that it can cause him to be acceptable to God. Now, the idea of mind or thinking runs throughout this text. You see it in in various words here. The unbelieving mind in, in view here in verse 17 to 19, and the believer's mind is in view in verse 23. The mind that God has given to us, to you and to me, the ability to think and to reason, really sets us apart from the rest of the created order, the physical creation of God, and it connects us with the spiritual order. Okay? So we would say, I think, that angels can think and reason like you and I do, and, and use language like you and I do. But animals don't have that capacity. No other physical creature has that capacity like we do. Animals can communicate. And at some level, we could say a mouse might figure out his way to get through a maze and get the cheese. But you'll never have a monkey write a movie script. You'll never have a parrot teaching calculus. Um, Or you'll never be able to sit down with your dog and philosophize about the meaning of life. That sort of thing uh, in the physical universe is unique to us 
human beings created in the image of God. But our thinking and our reasoning and that ability has been tainted with sin. And that means the very process of our thinking pre-conversion is doomed to failure. It's doomed for two reasons. The, the first is that sin has corrupted our thinking so much so that, our, that we cannot understand the things of God. Paul expounds on that idea further in 1 Corinthians 2.14. I leave that for your study. But the things of God don't register in the unsaved mind. That's not to say that the unconverted can understand nothing about God, but it does mean that their minds are incapable of understanding enough about God to come to the right conclusion about Him without the help of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 then says, our understanding or our ability to think through something has been darkened. But not only is the unsaved mind incapable of thinking rightly about God because of its corruption by sin, but, and, and this is important, Paul says the unsaved have intentionally rendered their minds inoperable in order to push God out. Now if we think about thinking, Perhaps it's helpful, it's helpful for me to think about thinking in terms of mathematics or solving an equation. And, and thinking goes like this. It's, it's taking desires and it's taking facts and figuring out a way to use the facts to accomplish your desires. For instance, very simple example. If I'm hungry, I have some sort of a desire to eat. I might also know the facts that in the fridge is milk, in the cupboard is a bowl, and in the drawer is a spoon. And I put those facts together with my desire, and I make myself a bowl of cereal. And that takes place in the mind first before it takes place on the kitchen table. When Paul says in verse 18 that the unconverted have a darkened understanding and they're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Again, he's talking about a process here, a process of thinking. And he's actually working backwards, so let's just kind of work through verse 18 backwards. The heart is hardened. When Paul says the heart is hardened, what he means is that it refuses to consider certain points of data. When you won't take in data, you make yourself ignorant, okay? Kids do this sometimes, plug the ears and blah, 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 okay, I don't want to hear what you're saying, okay? A hardened heart can't take in data. When you, when you don't take in data, you are ignorant. When you are ignorant, your understanding is faulty. You're not able to think correctly because you don't have all the facts. Therefore, any thinking you do always comes to the wrong conclusion. Let me give you an example of this uh, from the lips of Jesus in Luke 12, beginning in verse 16. Jesus says this, quote, The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself. Re see it, reasoning, thinking. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Jesus concludes by saying, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself, 
and is not rich towards God. Here's a man in Luke 12 who says this, productive fields plus big barns equal a long life of ease. It's a very simple, very simple mathematical equation. But Jesus calls him a fool. Why? Because he missed something in his calculations. He missed the fact that God can take his life at any time. James chapter 4, which we studied together a year ago, echoes that same sentiment. Don't say you're going to go to such and such a town and make a profit without considering the fact that God may not even allow you to wake up tomorrow morning, much less go to this place, much less make a profit. So in your thinking... No matter what it is you're thinking about, you need to include the person of God in there. If you don't, you're going to come to the wrong conclusion. Modern science as we know it, for all its incredible abilities, has one ultimately fatal flaw. Modern science refuses to take into consideration the reality and the person of God. There was a scientific paper on the hand that was recently published, and I forget where it was published, um, but the writers of it made some sort of reference to design and a creator in it, and, and somehow it made it to publication, and there was just a firestorm within the scientific community. How dare you assume there's a creator behind this, this hand? And the outcry was so great, they actually rescinded the paper and, and, and withdrew it. Because modern science refuses to take into consideration the reality of the person of God. That's, by the way, that's how you get secular psychiatry trying to treat the effects of sinful desires in a purely medicinal way. Um, uh, that's not to say that medicine can't have its place, but when, you, when there's no allowance for sin, uh, psychiatry is ultimately going to come up Wrong. That's how you get the inescapable conclusion that at, at the end of the day, you are no different than your dog because we're really all just the fruit of some cosmic accident and therefore we're substantively no different. That's how you wind up with a depressing outlook on the grave. If there is no God, there's, there's no hope beyond the grave. And that doesn't square with our innermost uh, understanding of life after death. Even for an unbeliever, they, they, they wrestle with that. How can I understand life after death if I can't include God in my calculation? Refusing to enter God into our thinking is how you wind up with this, this mad hunt that's happening right now for a homosexual gene. We've got to find it. If there's no such thing as God to dictate morality, we have to find all our answers to all our moral dilemmas in our DNA somewhere, and we have to tweak it until uh, we can all call ourselves perfect. And so the end result, as close as it sometimes gets and as useful as it can be to us, is always going to end up off course because there's a tacit refusal to include the reality of God in the thinking process. Now the reason for the flawed thinking in, is in verse 19. Paul says there that unbelievers have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Here's the deal. If you include God's equations, you will find your desires to be at odds with his desires. For example, uh, one of the strongest, if not the strongest, desire in humanity is the sexual desire. It's described in 1 Corinthians 7 as a fire that burns a person up. It is as difficult to control your sexual desires as it is to light yourself on fire and not be burnt up. 
So in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis, you'll find sexuality expressed in marriage, but you'll also find it expressed in polygamy, rape, incest, prostitution, homosexuality, and more than once, a combination of two or three of those things. Leviticus has laws against bestiality because apparently that was an issue even 3,500 years ago. But if we as believers are going to go out and satisfy our sexual desires, we have to include the person of God in our thinking. And if we do that, what we find is that all our sexual desires have to be directed at one person, which is our spouse of the opposite gender. So if, if you want to have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife, the only way you can possibly conclude that's a good idea is to cut God out of your thinking. You can find all sorts of reasons it is a good idea, but not if you include God in your thinking. If you ignore the reality of God in his law, you can come up with all sorts of thinking that makes it a good idea. If you want to have monogamous sexual relations outside of marriage, the only way you can do that is to ignore God and his law. And the pattern of the unbeliever is to ignore and suppress God because Unbelievers have given themselves over to something besides pleasing God. You see that in verse 19. They have given themselves over to sensuality. The unbelieving world cares far more about fulfilling their physical desires than meeting the standard of God's law. It's always been that way, and it always will be forever. Uh, Romans 7, Paul calls the law of God weak. There's Romans 8, I think, verse 2. So don't be surprised when unsaved people don't seem to care what God's law says because they never will, and, and you can't make them. You could, I suppose, throw them in jail for breaking God's law, but then it's really your law that they fear and not God's law. So the thinking process of an unbeliever is moving towards an ever-increasing hardness and darkness for the purpose of, and this is why they do that, so that you can chase after sin with greater freedom because God's law is restrictive and God's law restrains and the best way to cast off the restraints is just to ignore the law. And if you want to ignore the law, you have to ignore the one who gave the law. And so that's how you wind up with this godless sort of condition. And that is the condition we all were in pre-Christ to some degree. Again, this is a process. Uh, we're not, not all unbelievers are at the end of this process, but they're all moving that direction. And you and I were moving that direction pre-Christ. If you want to see this in a, a story form, you can follow Pharaoh's uh, progress of hardening his heart in the book of Exodus. The longer we remain in sin outside of Christ, the harder our hearts get, the, the more our understanding is darkened, the greater our ignorance becomes. We are less and less responsive to the impulses of conscience as, as the power to restrain our behavior and our desires decreases until there's nothing left in your thinking process, verse 9, except this greediness for impurity. And nothing can stand in its way. The, this is the end of the corruption of sin, this wanton desire for nothing but evil pleasures. And without Christ, that's the direction we are heading. That is then the old walk. It's this poisonous combination of wrong thinking for the sake of evil behavior. And the end result is eternal death. But in verse 20 to 24, we have the description of the new walk. 
Verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. In other words, you cannot think how you used to think and embrace Christ at the same time. The two don't mix. You didn't learn Christ in such a way that he fits into your old pattern of thinking. That's why I think Paul says in verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. If you learn Jesus properly, you know that the old walk and the old way of thinking can't coexist in your life alongside of Jesus. And again, there, there always has been and there always will be systems of theology that attempt to combine the old walk and the new and say that you can add Jesus into your old thinking without fundamentally changing it. That's not how the Ephesians learned Christ. If that's how they learned Christ, verse 21 would suggest that they didn't really learn Christ. The way they... The way the Ephesians learned Christ from the Apostle Paul turned their thinking upside down. In order to embrace or to learn Christ, then they had to abandon or put off their old thought process, which means they have to subject their desires to Christ rather than subject Christ to their desires. One of the two is going to reign supreme, and Christ has to reign over the desires. So in verse 22, Paul says the old self has to be laid aside. The old self, the old me, the pre-conversion me, my way of thinking was being, verse 22, corrupted by the lusts of deceit. That's basically a repeat of verse 19, sensuality and greediness for impurity. My desires, my lusts were corrupting me, and I have to throw them off, or they will continue to corrupt. Instead, verse 23, we embrace a new way of thinking, a renewed spirit of the mind. So Romans 12, 2 says our behavior is transformed from the worldly behavior to a worshipful behavior by the renewing of our minds. Because when we think different, we act different. And so we, we throw aside the old thinking. We put on the new thinking that's built around the person of Jesus Christ. We put on in verse 24, the new self. I think that's a reference to the new birth. It's a reference to having been made alive in chapter 2, verse 4. The new self has been created in the likeness of God, not after the likeness of my desires. The new self has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The new self has a new Morality, it is governed by thinking that always includes the person and the character of God. And all the desires are subject to the desires of Christ. And so believers have a new way of thinking. We embrace new information. That is, we are not willfully ignorant. We open the book and we actually want to know what it says. Okay? Um, even though it's really painful. It's really painful sometimes to open the scriptures and see what God says because it often flies in the face of what I want. But believers have a new way of thinking. We want to know the new data. We want to know this data here. We want to know what is true. We want to include that truth in our pattern of thinking. That, this is another reason why doctrine and theology is so vitally important. Listen, uh, doctrine and theology are, at the end of the day, nothing, ex nothing but trying to figure out what is actually true. There was a day couple of centuries ago when theology was considered a scientific endeavor because science just studies what is and since God is theology was simply applying scientific rationale or philosophy uh, thinking logic theology is simply applying the the power of the mind to the study of God 
So when you think about the science department, believers have an extra wing in the science department. It's the theology wing. It adds the missing information to help us be truly wise, not only in this life, but in the one to come. Now, in the broader context of Ephesians 4, the specific doctrine Paul has in mind here is the doctrine of the church. You Ephesians, you need to understand the seriousness of what God has called you to be. You need to understand the significance of your relationship with each other in this thing called the church. The church wasn't given to us by Jesus to give us something to do for an hour and a half on the weekend. The church was given to us to be the lifeblood of a believer. The place, and I don't just mean a building, but the place where we all congregate in which we experience the fullness of Jesus Christ himself. So so often we think, I'd love to have Jesus over for supper and he could sit at my table. And the point is, Jesus' table is here. Okay? Come and experience Jesus here, um, together. I won't stand there again. Stay here. Um, So what does that look like, practically speaking, this church, this one place where the old self is laid aside and there's meant to be an entire culture of newness in which we all walk together? And and again, um, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Glad you're here. You need to come and and hear the gospel and and be saved. But church was designed for believers to come together and walk in newness together. And that's the main thrust of what the church is. Okay, what does that look like practically speaking? Well, that's where Paul goes beginning in verse 25 when he begins to talk about being called to walk, not just in individual newness, but in corporate newness. So in verse 25, the first thing Paul writes about in this portion of Scripture regarding the walk of corporate newness, if you will, has to do with our speech. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. The old self, the old me, told lies whenever it was convenient in order to fulfill my desires. You know that truth can easily get in the way of getting what I want? So we just... The old man, the old me, just tosses the truth aside because it, frankly, makes my life much easier and more pleasurable. Paul says, throw it off. Throw aside falsehood. Why? Notice Paul's rationale for speaking the truth. Look at what he says here. This is fascinating. Paul's rationale for speaking the truth is this. This is data, by the way. Here's a piece of data. We are members of one another. When you don't tell the truth, You are hurting the person you are lying to. You're feeding them bad information. Your bad information hurts them by hurting their thinking. And more than that, you are hurting yourself because we are members of one another. When you withhold the truth from each other, you are, to use an old phrase, cutting off your nose to spite your face. Lying to each other is self-destructive behavior, not just for them but for yourself. Paul used the same logic with husbands and wives in chapter 5. He says, husbands, you need to love your wife because when you love your wife, you are loving yourself. You see that in verse 28 of chapter 5. That's how close the marriage bond is. When your wife benefits from your love, you are going to benefit from it as well. The church bond is that close as well. We are members of one another. You wouldn't lie to yourself. What's the point of that? 
You're only hurting yourself. Self-deception is really, really stupid. So lay aside falsehood. Tell the truth for the benefit of others and ultimately for your own benefit. Verse 26, be angry, do not sin. This is an interesting comment, I think, interesting command, because in verse 31, Paul says to put off all anger. And here he says, be angry, uh, but don't sin. You know, there is a place, a proper place for anger. Jesus, of course, demonstrated it in the temple and in his dealings with the Pharisees. On a practical level, if someone broke into your house and kidnapped your daughter and you weren't angry about it, there's frankly something seriously wrong with you. Anger is an appropriate response to sin. But the anger of a believer is to be governed or restrained in this way. Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Simply put, and you know this, what what he means, he just means don't stay angry. Be angry, but don't stay angry for a long time. And I think in context, the specific anger Paul has in mind here is anger towards another member of the church. That seems to fit the context best. Who are we angry at? We're angry at someone else in the church. And sometimes we ought to be angry with each other. I need to see your anger when I screw up or I won't appreciate the seriousness of my sin. And you need the same thing from me. If we walk around sinning and people just say, meh, who cares? We've got a problem that's going to grow and grow until it becomes our undoing. If Jesus walks into the temple and says, guys, could you please just kind of pack this stuff up and take it outside? I I just think that would be more appropriate for you to sell outside. I guarantee you nothing gets done. The problem only gets worse. But when Jesus picks up a scourge and starts flogging people and throwing tables and chairs and animal cages all over the place, you know what? People notice and, and things start to happen. But you also need to notice that Jesus doesn't flog people every day. He was momentarily consumed by zeal for the Father's house. But that's not the same as saying that every time he went to the temple, he flogged somebody, even though there was probably somebody there who needed a good flogging every time. Anger is a very dangerous thing, and it quickly ferments into something rotten. Paul says, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. And then verse 27, do not give the devil an opportunity because it's very easy for our enemy to creep into our anger and turn it from something good and useful into something destructive. Anger is a very powerful emotion and it tends to override all our other thinking and feelings. When we talk about being angry, we talk about seeing red. Why? It just means you can't see anything else. You can't see clearly. You're just driven by that one passion, and that's a dangerous place to be. And and we don't experience any emotion in complete purity, unfortunately. And, And when it comes to anger, the very least bit of sinful or selfish motivation in our anger, and it's going to be there, minus Jesus, But the least bit of sinful, selfish motivation is going to be leveraged by the enemy to transform our anger into a blind rage against a brother. And and when that happens, we've caused great harm to the body. So lay aside your old thinking about anger. Your old thinking about anger. 
Pre-Christ, we get angry when we don't get what we want or when someone is standing in the way of what I want. Instead, take on the Lord's thinking about anger, the new newness in thinking about anger. I get angry when sin is destroying the body of Christ. But, but that anger is fueled by a righteous desire for the good of the church and is very short-lived. Because if it's not, the enemy will creep in and overpower me. When I sin in such a way that harms the body, please, for my sake, be angry with me so I can see the seriousness of what I'm doing. And then let your anger subside. Because if you don't, the devil will creep into it, enter into your rage and destroy you and me both. Verse 28, we're to put on a new way of thinking about labor. He who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so he'll have something to share with one who has need. There's three people here in verse 28. Me, someone who has some money, and a third person who's in need. The old way of thinking says this, I need to eat, and the fastest, easiest way to get food is just to steal it from someone else. Or... I need to have money so I can have some fun. So I get it the easiest way I know how. I'll steal it. The old way of thinking about work and how we get material goods is getting the most I can, the fastest I can, so I can satisfy myself. Put that aside, Paul says. Set that aside. Put on a new way of thinking. Go out and work and do what is good or do honest work. Good, honest work done in the new way of thinking benefits three people. It benefits yourself because it puts food on your table. It benefits the person you're working for. Okay? You're doing good for them rather than stealing from them. You're performing a service that does them good. And thirdly, it provides for someone who, for whatever reason, can't work. He can't care for himself. Work provides me with the opportunity not just to care for myself, but to care for the person I'm working for and to benefit them and to benefit a third party who can't benefit for or provide for themselves for whatever reason. This is very practical advice, but something we need to hear, and it's a mindset that you need to go to work with tomorrow morning. Okay? I'm here, my own benefit, benefit of my family. I'm here for the benefit of my employer, my client. And I'm here to benefit those who can't be out laboring. Verse 29, we're back to speech again. Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Unwholesome there, it's translated corrupting in the ESV. It means putrefied or rotten. In other words, don't talk in such a way that you rot other people. Here's sort of a graphic illustration. Think of it this way. You're going to the fridge and you pull out an old uncooked chicken that's covered in a thick green layer of mold. You wouldn't eat that. And Paul might say, why do you stuff it in other people's mouth? Why do you talk to other people like you're shoving moldy chicken down their throat? It's not going to help them. It's going to cause great harm. It's disgusting. It's unkind. It only does damage. Only use such words as are good for edification according to the need of the moment. So it gives grace 
to those who hear. The old self uses rotten speech all the time. We use rotten, putrefying speech because destroying another person makes me feel better about myself. Put it off. Put on wholesome speech. Put on speech that is, if you will, full of spiritual nutrients and and leaves the other person stronger, not weaker. This is so practical, but it's so critical in the church. When we're at odds with someone, it's instinctive that we want to destroy them or at least poison them just a little bit. We are great. I'm great. Of all my skills, this is one of my best I am skilled with little words and phrases that seem harmless enough on the surface, but they're carefully designed to kill. We we know how to take a poisonous conversation and put on a thick candy coating of spirituality and shove it down other people's throat. That's the old self. Words are a funny thing. I don't know if you think about this like I do. I think about stupid things sometimes, weird things. On the one hand, words are just vibrations coming out of your mouth, and largely they're just our opinions. You can actually sit with somebody for hours and not actually accomplish anything, and by that I mean you haven't created anything or destroyed anything. You can sit over a cup of coffee and talk, and words go back and forth, opinions go back and forth, but you haven't actually created anything physical. In fact, you can even tell someone you dislike them without actually harming them physically. But words between people shape our relationships in the way that things we do with our hands can't. A man might fall in love with a woman just through the process of putting words on a page. I remember the letters that transpired between my future wife and I while I was in college. Wonderful things insight into her very soul. They're really just squiggles on a page. But they were really a a doorway into her soul. Our words are very much a part of us. When we put words in the air, we're putting ourselves out there. And those words, in a very real sense, can either build up or they can destroy. I, I don't think there's anything that's so valuable to us. And there's hardly a greater treasure in this world than other per, another person's words. We love to hear kind words, and we dread hearing harsh words. I had a particularly difficult job this week, and I wasn't afraid that the client was going to punch me in the nose. I was afraid that he was going to start talking unkind to me. And uh, somehow that, that's a fearful thing. It's, it's something we are afraid of. It's just vibrations okay, coming, passing through the air, but they're very powerful. My, my dad taught me the significance of telling my wife and my kids, I love you. He did that by example. You can demonstrate that you love your wife and kids. You should do that. And saying you love them without proving it by actions is ultimately meaningless. But that doesn't diminish the power of those simple words, I love you. Because words speak directly to our soul. They're, they're the language of our innermost being. The way we talk to each other reveals who we really are. Out of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. Never underestimate the power of words. Never underestimate the power they have to strengthen or to destroy. I I am being haunted, the older I get, by really dumb things that I've said in the past. I didn't think anything of it. 
I just talk. I just babble things. But it turns out some of those things actually stuck. And some people took them to heart and they really did a lot of damage. Or sometimes, thank God, it really did some, some good. Words are very powerful. You possess a great power in your tongue. And I'm not talking about the idiocy of those who say we create reality and unleash God's power with our words. That's blasphemy. But, but words really are among the most powerful tool in the universe. The pen truly is mightier than the sword. Use your words as a tool to build up, not to tear down. Use your words for the benefit of the body. Set aside the old way of just using words as a tool to prop up myself. Put that off. Bring in the newness. It says words build things. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. To grieve means to make sorrowful and the Spirit has sealed you or marked you for the day of redemption. He has breathed new life into you. He has created the new man. He has empowered the empowerment you need to throw off the old way of thinking and put on the new. He is the, the power behind the uh, growth in Christ and the cohesion, the unity of the body. But when you refuse to lay aside the old way of thinking, when you refuse to lay aside the old self, you cause him to be sorrowful. You actually put the Holy Spirit himself in the rather awkward position of having put his seal, you see that word there, of having put his seal on someone wearing the old coat. And you bring shame on the Holy Spirit himself. Don't do that. Instead, verse 31, throw aside bitterness. Bitterness, that fruit of extended anger, the product of wrath that you don't turn off, and now it lies smoldering in your bosom like a bed of coals, ready to ignite at a moment's notice. Have you seen people who are caught up in bitterness? They're just ready to go at any moment. There's something in them that's just festering and festering, and it won't go away like a bomb ready to explode. Throw it off. Throw off, Paul says, wrath, that explosive, red-faced rage that causes others to keep their distance in fear. That guy's a time bomb, ticking time bomb. He could go off any time for no reason. That anger that controls you as opposed to the anger you control in verse 26. Throw it off. Throw aside clamor, that's rooted in the Greek word cry out. In other words, don't make a fuss about everything all the time. Don't be the one who's always whining about something. Don't be the proverbial squeaky wheel. Throw it off. Throw off clamor. Throw off slander. Slander is causing someone to have an incorrect opinion of someone else. You know, again, we Christians can be very skillful at telling the truth in such a way that the other person winds up believing what isn't true. Okay? We, 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 have to, we have to tell the truth. We're Christians. But we can actually figure out a way to tell the truth in such a way that the other person believes something that's incorrect about another person. We paint portraits of each other with our words. When I talk about your pastor to my friends, I'm painting a portrait of him in their minds. When you talk through your relationships with each other, you're painting portraits of each other in each other's minds. And make sure that those portraits are accurate. 
Slander is a common tool of the old self. It makes me feel better. It hurts the person I want to be hurt. It makes me look like the good guy and the other person the bad guy. Paul says, throw it off. Finally, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God and Christ has forgiven you. Look, If Jesus treated us like the old self treats other people, you'd be dead, I'd be dead, hell would be our home now and forever and ever. Sounds kind of like kindergarten talk, verse 32, doesn't it? Be kind to one another. And in some ways it is, but it's recorded on the pages of sacred scripture because we need to remember to throw off the old and put on the new be tender-hearted. Literally, the, the Greek word here means good guts. You splankna. Uh, if splankna sounds like a spaghetti dish, that's, I think that's what it actually was in Greek. It's, just, it's your guts, and, and you means good. Be good-gutted. The idea is that the inner core of your being is yearning for the good of others. Genuinely seek after, with fervor and tenderness, the eternal profit of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Finally, Be forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. I think this is a reference to Jesus' story in Matthew 18 of the man who was forgiven the debt of 10,000 talents and then went straight out and strangled his fellow slave who owed him 100 denarii. You remember that story? I think we've referenced it here before. I was thinking about that, this story, and I thought, you know, 10,000 talents is really an insurmountable debt. And in comparison to that, 100 denarii is small. But you know what? Let me just be honest with you for a minute. 100 denarii is still a pretty big sum for one person to come up with. Jesus could have made it in the story one denarii, but he doesn't. He makes it actually 100. And I don't want to diminish the difficulty of forgiving here. 100 denarii is four months' wages. It's not that easy to save up that kind of money. It takes more than four months to save up four months' worth of wages. You know that, right? I, financial planners tell you you're supposed to have six months you know, reserve in the bank. You know how hard it is? You don't just work for six months and stick the money in the bank. It takes years sometimes to save that kind of money. You know, it's possible that some people have sucked months out of your life. It's possible you've sucked months out of someone else's life. It's going to happen, I guarantee it. But But our offense against God was so great that sucking an eternity of torment out of us in hell, if God were to try to suck that debt out of us, we could never repay the debt we incurred. So Jesus paid the debt so that I, with my infinite debt, could be forgiven. But you know what? Can I just be honest with you here? It's still pretty hard to... Forgive the metaphorical guy who sucked four months out of me and won't give it back. It still hurts. It's still painful. Forgiving isn't easy and it's not fun. If forgiving was natural, it wouldn't be a part of the new man and the old man could do it. An unforgiving spirit is something we have to lay aside, to put off. My refusal to forgive is frankly a larger offense than the hundred denarii won't be repaid. You need to understand this. Because when the man in the story refuses to forgive the hundred denarii, 
He gets thrown in prison and says, okay, you owe the 10,000 talents again. He gets that debt stuck back on his head. We have been forgiven a great debt by the death of Christ. We dare not walk in the oldness of unforgiveness. We have to, by the power of the Spirit, walk in the newness of forgiveness. And I'm not saying that's easy because it's not. But God, in Christ Jesus, Paul says, has forgiven us. Everything here in verse 25 to 32 has to do with relationships between people in the church. I can't stress how important it is for believers to take these words seriously. The life or the death of a church rests on our ability to be able to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, throw off the old and put on the new. We've been called to walk in newness. And newness isn't just about me cleaning up my own act for my own sake. It's about me walking in newness for your sake, for the sake of the church at large, for the sake of the church being able to properly function and minister. We are kind to one another because at the end of the day, Eternal souls are stake. I want you to think about it this way in an even broader light. The church is the beacon of the gospel. And if that light shines dimly, we have only ourselves to blame if our community can't see it. If the gospel doesn't cause us to throw off the old and put on the new, what do we honestly have to offer anyone they don't already have? Everyone's already got an old coat. And if you can't put on a new one and say, please come join us in the new coat, you ultimately have nothing to offer unless you have a little extra entertainment on a dead hour on Sunday morning. The Gentiles, the unsaved, know precious little about a community that is genuinely striving by the power of the Holy Spirit to throw off the old way of selfish thinking and put on the newness of life in the interest of and for the benefit of each other. Some of us need, myself first and foremost, to throw off the old man once again. He keeps coming back. Put on the new for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of the community, and even for our own benefit, it will come back around. Father, thank you for your word this morning, and I pray for these dear people. I thank you so much that you have graciously called us not only to salvation in Christ, but you have called us into the church. And now, Father, help us to throw off the old man, and to walk in the newness which you have called us to walk. Father, I understand that this is not an easy thing. It's not automatic. It doesn't happen without blood, sweat, and tears. And so help us to walk in ways that we don't naturally walk, according to the power of the Holy Spirit, not according to the oldness of our desires that were so greedy for impurity. Help us to cast it off for our own good, for the good of each other, and for the good of those souls in this community that need to come to see the glorious person of Christ represented and well lived out in the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.